Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when his disciples came to him and asked him, what will be the sign of your coming? And instead of a date or an exact checklist, Jesus gave them a description of the future that was to come. He gave them warnings to heed about the temptations his people would face, and he gave them examples to follow to teach them how they should wait. He taught them that the Son of Man will arrive unexpectedly, that he will return in surprising glory at a time that nobody is able to predict. Like a servant who doesn't know when his master will be back to check on him, like a sheep who doesn't know when the shepherd will return, Jesus told his disciples that we can't prepare for him to return at a certain time. Instead, he instructed them to be ready for his return at all times. Our Savior made a promise. The dawn is coming. And our teacher gave us a warning. Are you ready? All right. Well, Jesus didn't come back last week because we're all here, right? Uh, I, I, have, I don't know if I've ever shared with you, but there was a moment when I was a kid that uh, I came home and there were things on in the kitchen, but nobody was there. The TV was on, but nobody was there. The house clearly had been inhabited, but nobody was there. I thought I was left behind. And I was like 11 years old, and I was like really upset. I'm like, please don't, don't leave me behind. I want to be here. And then my dad showed up, who are you talking to? So uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but it's uh, kind of an interesting thing. So last week we talked about that Jesus is coming back. And I'm sure every generation that since he said that has been looking and wondering if it will be during my lifetime. And as we learned last week is that he didn't give us the day or the hour because that's only known by the Father. But the Father's wisdom in not giving that to us is because he knows that we will live with greater expectancy and anticipation if we do not know the day or the hour. Because if we did, we would procrastinate. And if we thought that God, if God had said, it's, I'm coming in the 21st century, then those who lived in the 19th century, would they have lived with the fire and the zeal of the Lord? No, they wouldn't have. Because they'd say, well, it's way after our lifetime. So there is a blessing to be had that, that, that we do not know the day or the hour. And we live excited for that day. And if God comes back this coming week, I'm sure we would be celebrating it for sure. Now, maybe Caleb and Addie will not. They, they might be saying, wait just a couple more months, you know, Lord, uh, and so that they can have that wedding day. But for the rest of us, we're excited. You know, if you believe that Jesus is coming, when he shows up, let him find us doing that which he wishes us to be doing. And that is living to the glory of him and in such a way that people will see Jesus in us and pursue him as well. Let us pray before we begin into the rest of this series today. So, God, we know that it was you that showed your incredible love for us as created ones. We were made in your image, and you didn't come and send your son Jesus for the animals of the earth. You sent him for, for the human beings of this earth, the ones you said you created to be like you, similar to you, carrying your image, ability to reason, the ability to lead. And you have then given the ultimate sacrifice to reconcile that which was broken among mankind back to yourself through the work of Jesus Christ. And that same son of yours, Jesus, said he's coming back and he will collect those who are alive and those who had already proceeded in death. And so we just ask that whenever that time happens, that we will be found not panicked or fearful because we weren't prepared, but that you'll find us excited and hopeful because we were expecting your return. So we pray all this in the name of Jesus and that you will help us understand more today. Amen. All right, at this time, I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And if you do not have a Bible, our ushers will be glad to provide you one. 
And, uh, and if you want to use a tablet or phone, uh, you can go into the Uversion app. You can download that app. And, uh, and we will be uh, t- found in there if you go to the Events tab and tap on LEFC when the events show different places. You'll find LEFC. Tap on that. And, uh, and you'll find all the scriptures we'll be using today. And it'll be literally on your screen. Having said that, the context of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is rather significant. And I think to appreciate all that happens on this moment when Jesus shares what he shares on the top of uh, the Mount of Olives, we have to know what day it is to appreciate it. So what is happening is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, so it's called the Olivet Discourse because, first of all, it happens on the Mount of Olives. So Olivet. And it's a discourse because it's a message. And the book of Matthew, that Olivet Discourse is shared in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. And particularly, it's on Tuesday of the week, what we call now Holy Week. So Tuesday of the week in which Jesus was uh, betrayed ultimately sacrificed, and then would resurrect on the beginning of the next week. And so this day is significant. And it happens with the two days leading up to it, with Sunday being his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as he's coming into Jerusalem as king, when he could see Jerusalem as he's coming over the crest of the hill, his heart breaks and his heart becomes emotional as he looks at Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many prophets have I sent to you? How many people have I come to speak to your heart only for you to kill them, reject them, to arrest them, and to torture them? If only you had come and listened to them. And so Jesus says those things while riding on a donkey coming into that city on Sunday. He ends that triumphal entry coming into the walls and into the temple courts only to see that because it's evening time, the temple sits empty. He looks around, it says in the text, and then he leaves. Now that moment I always find interesting because you, if you know what's going to happen in that week, in that temple that week, he is going to clear it on Monday. He is going to confront all the money changers and those who had turned the temple into a place of fleecing the people as they would come to sacrifice. That was going to happen the next day. And then he was going to debate with the teachers of the law at the temple on Tuesday. And then he was going to have to defend himself again on that temple mount on Thursday. And then Friday on that hill, again, he gives himself as the final lamb to cover the multitude of sins, past, present, and future, of all those who by faith seek him. And then on that, yes, that temple mount, on those hills, he came out of a grave on the first day of the following week, forever giving life and hope to those who receive the grace offered. All of that happens in this week. And the story of what we find of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 is in the midst of all that happens in that week. So let's understand the context that when on Tuesday he begins the day, after he'd already cleared the temple and confronted all that was going on there, which quite frankly was an embarrassment to the teachers of the law because it was under their leadership that those things were happening. Then on the next day, they have the opportunity to exchange thoughts, ideas, and philosophies, and ultimately the perspective of Scripture. And on that Tuesday, as it begins, they call as the temple debate. There is much exchange that goes on, and we're going to talk about some of the entrapments and questions that those teachers of the law asked of Jesus, and then even a question that Jesus asked back of them. But he concludes that whole debate time with basically a shaking off of his sandals and the washing of his hands of all that happens in that generation. And when he says in verse 37 of chapter 23, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, in audience to this temple debate were the disciples themselves. They had grown up in a generation where that temple that had been reconstructed and it looked great again. And and to find that the pride of Israel was literally around that house. And for seeing the debates going on and Jesus regularly showing his wisdom, his authority, his insight, and his love, had to be horrified that at the end of his time as Jesus is walking out of those temple courts to hear Jesus say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have sent many to you only to have you reject them, to kill them. If only you had received me as a hen gathers her chicks. And now this house that is the identity of Israel, that is received as their place of worship, the place that it said that God had given his promises, that they took pride in, but yet they didn't worship him with sincerity of heart. Jesus calls them out for where their heart really is and says, this house will be made desolate. This house will be made desolate. If you're the disciples hearing all of this, you're like, wow, way to go, Jesus, way to go, Jesus. You are winning the debate. But then as they're walking out to hear him say that, they're like, whoa, not the temple. Not not the temple, not this place that the glory of the Lord that you just yesterday declared is meant to be a house of prayer a place that is the Lord's house, why would you then declare it's going to be made desolate? How would you respond if something that was very precious to you was something of great identity to you? I mean, as Americans, we might choose different structures in America as as being the example of our national identity. You might choose the Statue of Liberty. You might choose the White House or the Capitol Building, perhaps the Washington Monument. I don't know what you would choose. But if any one of those was destroyed, there would be great grieving in our country and anger. For the disciples, they're hearing their leader say, This house will become desolate. So how do you touch that sticky subject? Look what they do in verse 1. So they're leaving the temple, and they're walking away, and it says that when Jesus left the temple and was walking away, his disciples came up to him and to call to his attention the buildings that they were just around and their splendor. You know, it's kind of like, fishing for more information. He's just said it's going to be made desolate. And they're like, Jesus, look at how incredible these structures are. Jesus responds, and he doesn't enjoy the flattery of the moment. Again, keep in mind, he was zealous for that house the day before. Now he's declared that desolation is coming upon it. And so when they call to the attention its buildings, Jesus says in verse 2, Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now the disciples might be regretting that they had brought this up because now Jesus goes on to describe what the desolation will look like is that there will be some form of undoing of the structure that even these large stones, some of which were 30 feet in length and 10 feet wide. Could you imagine something like that being moved? But yet, he's saying, not a single stone will be left unturned. Wow. All these things that they had grown up, knowing that some of them, you know, were, were told like, you should have seen the temple before Herod the Great fixed it and, and, and brought it back to its former glory. 
and now it's going to be made desolate? And Jesus is saying it's going to be torn so far apart that there won't be a single one of these stones left on another? They continue their walk. And they come to, as they come out the eastern gate, and this is where, if you can see, we'll go ahead and throw a picture up here that will help you understand what this looks like. But you can see the gate that has walls in front of it now. But that gate was what they're walking out of, and they're coming up the hillside. And let me tell you, Mount, Mount of Olives is a pretty steep climb. And when you get to the top, it makes sense that Jesus stops at the top and sits down. But in this case, they're able to sit down and look over Jerusalem. While they're taking this break, all the disciples around them are sitting up there. But meanwhile, at least some of them, their minds are swimming. They're circulating around what Jesus has just said that not a single stone will be left on top of another. While some of the disciples are maybe getting a drink or, or having other chats, we know that from Mark chapter 13, four of them went privately to Jesus and asked a couple of questions of clarity. Those four were Peter and Andrew, James and John, the two sets of brothers that were rival fishermen and friends from the Sea of Galilee and from the, the town of Capernaum. For whatever reason, they felt like their questions needed to be asked in private. I think we can get there as we go through this message today. But they wanted to understand more of what Jesus meant by what he said. So we see in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on top of this Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him. And again, Matthew doesn't say who. It just says the disciples came to him. So we know it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they said, tell us. When will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Two questions that I'm telling you that if I could have an audience with Jesus, I'd be like, okay, I've got my pen and paper out. Let's start writing. Because he asked when. Isn't it true that even though we know Jesus says, only the Father knows the day or the hour of my return, that the question we would love for him to just answer is, when? When will you return? In this case, their question of when was about, when will this happen to the temple in Jerusalem? And then their second question was, and what will be the signs of your coming and the signs of the end of the age? Those are great questions. So we know that Desolation will come to the house of those who have not listened or received. But in this situation, desolation again will come to those who do not listen and receive, because that's why Jesus said what he said. But you see here that these disciples were such that when they were seeking understanding, their faith grew. So in other words, the true heart of faith will be willing to seek understanding and ask questions. And that's what we see here. And we'll compare it here in a moment to what happened at the temple earlier in the day. But Jesus has declared a desolation. They want to understand when. And then they go further and ask questions about things he's already said during that week and the weeks before. That he's coming back. But they want to know the signs of that. And we might as well ask, when's the signs of the end? So how does Jesus respond? Because you've got these two, these four men asking a great question. Does he receive this as challenging to him? Or does he receive it as, this is an opportunity to grow their faith? You see, when you question God, it's a, it can be an operation of peril. Depending on what the motive is of that question, right? In their case, Jesus responds with two chapters in Matthew, multiple words in, in Luke. It's kind of spattering on, on the Luke side, but you've got all this response to these questions that because they asked, you and I have more information to work with today. So if they had not asked, 
what would have happened? We would be left without a lot of opportunities to know the signs and the coming of his return. And we'd be left more blind. But because they sought and sought understanding with more questions, you and I benefit from it. But so did they in their faith. Keep in mind that this day was filled with questions. And the questions were questions that were legitimate questions, except for the heart behind them was illegitimate. Consider the temple debate that happened that morning. So you begin with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were part, there were two parties as part of the Sanhedrin, or the, the leadership, or the, the priestly leadership of the country. So you had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, they were more, what should I say, middle class or lower class people. They had come from out of the people, and they were rising to being Pharisees and leaders because they were the ones that studied the most and applied the law most fiercely over others. So they were ones that the, that the people would look at and say, they're the holy ones. The Sadducees, well, they were more of the, what should I say, the rich part of the country. They were the ones that came from wealthy homes. And they were a little bit more secular in their approach. They weren't known as being strong spiritual people. They were known as being very controlling, authoritative, and buddies to the Roman Empire. They tended to work with the Gentiles to gain their power. Because it was all about being the leader. And they were the ruling party at the time in the Sanhedrin. So... Their questions, their debate with Jesus was, yes, again, good questions, but for wrong reasons. We know from the past that when God says, if you question me, it can be at your own risk because people lost their lives over questioning God. But in this context, God gives us a little bit of the window into the souls of the leaders of their day to understand what was going on as to why Jesus would say, desolation is coming to this house and this generation. So the Pharisees began their questioning of Jesus with the question about a tax. They went political. Now, the reason why they went political is because they know that if the people of the country hear Jesus say something that isn't right politically, then they know that they will fall more in line of the leadership of the Pharisees. So they go political. And this becomes a very hot moment because what they ask about, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar? Now, you need to understand this imperial tax was specifically a tax targeting the Jews to impoverish them and oppress them. This is a way to cause them to not be so confident about who they are, but to become insecure in their identity. So this tax was horrific. And so they ask, is it right to pay it? If Jesus answers wrongly about this political issue, then they've got people that will immediately dismiss him now as leader, and the Pharisees regain their influence with the people. Let me tell you, I feel the tension of that. If I don't say all the things I say, whether by video or in message that's politically aligned with you, your attendance here might be decided upon that question, right? Happens. And it happened during the pandemic when certain people tried to read into things and say, oh, he's from the wrong side of the aisle politically. And they didn't stick around. So this political issue does play into spiritual uh, movements within the church, even today. So how did Jesus handle it? He asked for a coin that you pay the tax with. And on that coin, he asked whose face and image is on it. I said Caesar's. So he tosses the coin and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He didn't take the bait that this movement of his is political. It's not. It's a spiritual kingdom. And he cares more about the heart of people than about political movements. The Sadducees, 
their turn comes up. All right, Pharisees didn't get their trap to work, so let us choose ours. Now, again, I told you the, Pharisees, the Sadducees were much more secularized. They also did not believe in what the Old Testament scriptures would, were prophesying about, is that there will be a resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the people. If you would have seen uh, the whole of Mount of Olives, if you notice in the foreground of that picture, there were all those tombs. The reason why those tombs are on the Mount of Olives is because in the Old Testament, it says that there will be a resurrection that will, from a leader, the Messiah, that will come from the east. And he will come over that hill towards Jerusalem. And so the people that are parked out there with their bodies in tombs are hoping to be the first to rise. It's a rush to be first. So this is rooted very much in their culture, this idea of resurrection. But the Sadducees didn't buy it. In fact, they thought it was a foolish idea. So their question of Jesus was this. All right, Jesus, we've got a question about the resurrection. You see, in their culture, if a woman is married to a man and her husband dies, if he had a brother, that brother must take her as his wife. All right? So that's the cultural norm that they lived in. And so the Sadducees said, okay, so there's a woman whose husband died. And he, this husband of hers who died had six brothers. So she marries the next brother, and he dies. And then she has to marry the next brother, and he dies. If I'm the fifth brother, I'm like, I'm out. I'm out. But in this case, all the brothers die, and so... The question by the Sadducees is, okay, she's been married to seven brothers. To whom is she married at the resurrection? They're thinking, ah, oh, we got him trapped now because he's going to look foolish no matter how he answers this. And we can just prove once and for all, not only that he's a, a fraud, but we can prove that the resurrection doesn't happen. Jesus' response to their question was, how silly are you? You don't even know your own scriptures. People will not be given a marriage at the point of the resurrection. It's a non-issue. Sadducees go silent. The Pharisees try one more time, and they ask about, well, what's going to be the greatest commandment if the Scripture, if you say you know the Scripture so well? Jesus can answer this because he himself asked people, what's the greatest commandment? So he answers appropriately, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But then he adds, and the second is great as well, to love your neighbor as yourself. Whew. Then Jesus turns the tables. He asks a question. He asks of them, again, all this is in Matthew 22. And he asks them, he says, all right, whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, it's David's son. All right, that's correct answer. But my next question is, then why does David call the Messiah Lord? Now, here's the key moment about the motives of the hearts of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That question, if they are willing to ask clarifying questions to it, could lead them to faith. But they didn't want faith. So they instead chose not to ask any more questions. In fact, it says in verse 45 that they dared not ask another thing. They tapped out. You see, questions can lead to a growing faith. As I've just said, a true, sincere faith will always seek understanding. And the best way to seek understanding is to ask questions. But the source and the motive of your questions matters much to God. Because for the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were asking so they could diminish and dismiss Jesus as the answer. They weren't truly seeking understanding. It's like comparing the two questions that happened when the angel Gabriel came to announce to Zechariah that you're going to have a son, and it's going to be John the Baptist. And then to Mary, Gabriel came as well and said, you're going to have a son, and he is going to be the Lord and King of Kings. Both cases Zechariah and Mary had legitimate causes to question the possibility of the, that message from Gabriel. For Zechariah, he was old, and his wife was old and was barren. And so for him, he's questioning how is this possible due to age. 
For Mary, she has a legitimate question as well. How can this be possible because she has never been with a man? But here's what the question was that Zechariah asked as compared to the question that Mary asked. Zechariah asked, how can I be sure of this? Convince me. Because I don't believe you. I mean, have you seen my wife? It's not in there, by the way. But you know he was probably thinking, have you not seen us? We are really old. How is this possible? How can I be sure of this? Prove it to me. Mary's question to Gabriel with something that seemed impossible was this. How will this be? She didn't doubt the possibility of it. She wanted to understand how you'll make it happen from her because she had never been with a man. For Zechariah, God's response was, all right, now you get to be silent for nine months. And you're not going to be able to speak until your child comes. For Mary, she was able to ponder these things and immediately write a song of praise. Zechariah wrote a song of praise, but it took him nine months to write it. It's all about the heart behind the question as to whether or not it grows into faith. Consider Nicodemus, also a Pharisee. He came to Jesus in the middle of the night, late at night, because he didn't want to be seen by anybody else. And so what did he do? He came up to Jesus and he, he kind of patronized him a little bit. I know that you are truly from God because the things you do could not be done by merely human beings. You speak and teach with authority. Jesus looks right at him. Nicodemus, these things can't happen to you unless you are born again. But then Nicodemus responds, well, how can I be born again? I've already been born. I'm already an adult. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb to be born? And Jesus goes, no. This isn't about a physical rebirth. This is about a spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus was inquiring. He was seeking. He's a Pharisee, just like the other Pharisee. But now he's inquiring to understand more. In John chapter 7, we think that you know, Nicodemus might just walk off the set and just questioning and not knowing what happened to him. But in John chapter 7, he becomes the advocate of Jesus before the Pharisees. The Pharisees had gathered, and they're contemplating how they're going to entrap Jesus and, and charge him and arrest him. And it's Nicodemus that says, shouldn't we investigate him or ask him questions before we would charge him with anything? Wouldn't it make sense to understand what he's saying? Which, by the way, was the law. They understood what was going on inside of him. By him saying, let's ask questions, they could tell his heart was open to the possibility that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Because what did they say to him? Oh, you're going to follow him too? Nicodemus is mentioned one more time. It's in John chapter 19. And it's at the point when Jesus was hanging on the cross and is now dead. And Joseph of Arimathea, one of also the religious leaders of the day, had gone to Pilate and asked for the body and to offer his own tomb to bury Jesus. And it says there was another with him who provided all the spices necessary for burial, and it was Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus on that night in John 3 came to Jesus to ask questions because he was seeking understanding. And as a result of asking those questions, he gained understanding. And once he gained understanding, he came to faith. So when we go back to this text in Matthew chapter 24, it helps you understand why maybe the four felt like they needed to carefully approach Jesus to ask these questions. Because they know that if you don't ask with the right motive, it can be perilous. So they come and they say, Jesus, when will this happen to the temple? And when, what are going to be the signs of your coming? that you've talked about several times now, and the signs of the end of the age. We don't get the answer 
of the, to the first question in Matthew. But Luke does account for it. That Jesus told them in regards to their first question about when will this happen, this desolation happen. It says in, in chapter 21 of Luke, it says, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies of Gentiles, you will know the desolation is near. And he goes on to say, and as a result, when you see that happen, your instruction is to leave Jerusalem and flee for the hills. Which is a very clear point of communication that says, so when you see this happen, you're not to stick around Jerusalem to fight for it. These are, this is happening because of my judgment over what's happened in this generation. So flee to the hills. Don't stick around. And as a result, what we now know is in A.D. 70, now there's argument as to whether or not Jesus is pointing here, but I believe he is. In A.D. 70, the armies of Rome surrounded Jerusalem, armies of Gentiles, and the church didn't stick around to defend Jerusalem. It scattered, and it began the scattering of the church far and wide, and the gospel actually went to multiple nations as the result of that scattering. So we now know that Jesus was pointing to something that was in their lifetime. Many of them lived to see this. And they knew exactly what to do when it happened. But they also asked about signs. But why? Because they wanted to know and be able to interpret the times. Should we stop doing what we're doing if we think it's today? Should we, like, do something special if we think it's next year? So therefore, the question about what are the signs of your return and what are the signs of the end are important. And Jesus received this as important, which is why he goes over in chapter 24 and 25 in, in the book of Matthew and giving answer to the signs. And what you're going to see as we teach over this over the next few weeks is that there are many signs that he says, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then there is a sign that he says, and then the time is near. Get ready. So we're going to go over these things. But I'm telling you, there is much more to study. And the wise person here in this room is going to ask questions. And you stand to benefit if you ask questions because you'll grow in your understanding and your faith will increase. I tell you one of the greatest mistakes we make as a church here in America, is that when we gather as a church and you hear a message preached by a preacher, whether that message was well-delivered or not, that you leave without thinking or pondering anything that was said. You don't ask any further questions of yourself. That's robbing yourself of faith, being able to grow. Tell me a person that after they hear a message, they're pondering it and they're questioning it. They're either questioning it with a, with a life group or with a, a set of peers or with a mentor or with a pastor for it perhaps. They're not just going to just receive and let it go. They're going to receive and say, I want to understand more. Which then leads me to what I think we can learn from the disciples as we go into these things over the next few weeks. And that is this. Show me a person whose posture is that of seeking understanding, and I show you a person who has a growing faith. The person whose posture of a growing faith is one who seeks understanding. They're going to ask questions. And by asking questions then, we can interpret the times in confidence of the Lord's sovereignty. When things get really serious in our life, and we see things falling all around us, and it appears as if everything's going dark and godlessness is rising strong. Do we operate in panic or fear? Or do we trust that God's got this? Because he pointed that things like this will happen. It's happened multiple times over the last two years where people are just alarmed by the godlessness that is growing in our country and in the world. It appears as if the devil is winning. And they look to me and are like, why aren't you upset by it? I have to be honest. Because God said this was going to happen. And he also says, he's got this. He's in control. He's leading. And therefore I have hope knowing what's coming. I have hope because I know who's in charge of what's coming. 
Now, when we ask questions, the question of timing keeps coming up because, of course, we want to know the day or the hour. And that's why Jesus kind of really took the steam out of that question to know the day or the hour when he says only the Father knows the day or the hour. But it's tempting when you're asking all the questions to be so focused in knowing the day or the hour that we start focusing in there rather than being equipped to interpret the times so that we know how to live. In 1986, when I was 16 years old, I saw my father reading a little booklet to another person. And on the cover of that booklet was the title, 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Going to Return in 1988. All right, admit, how many of you have seen that book before? All right, how many of you own that book? <laughs> Let me tell you, it was a hot seller for about two years. But in 1989, I don't know of anybody who bought it. Just to put in dates, I graduated in 1989. So I was thinking, man, I'm not even going to make it to graduation seeing this. I can tell you right now, if somebody starts putting a date to it, which by the way, he actually says it's either September 11th or September 12th of 1988. How interesting is that? I can guarantee you that's not the day Jesus is coming back. If Jesus says, I don't know it, then how in the world is one of us going to know it? But Jesus gives us these things because he wants us to always be prepared and then know the signs so that we're not caught off guard. Because a person who does not ask questions, who does not seek to understand and interpret the times, is going to be alarmed and afraid as things get worse. But the person who understands that these things will happen before his return comes... They stand with hope and confidence. See, with understanding, we can navigate these times, regardless of how dark they get, with hope, not fear, because we trust in the sovereign God who has orchestrated the times before we ever took a breath. Now, here's the cool thing. If we are actually in the midst of absolute chaos, operating with hope, do you think people are going to take notice? Yes. Yes, they're going to take notice. And they're going to wonder, why in the world are you having hope whenever everybody else is operating in panic or fear? You see, the fourth thing we learn in this is that we need to be near enough to those who are seeking that they can ask questions of understanding. It's not just our sake that we seek understanding. See, if we seek understanding, we ask good questions, our faith is going to grow. And if our faith is growing, our faith is going to also be cause us to start walking with hope. And if we're walking with hope and we're near people who do not have that hope, and they actually become seekers, guess what they're going to do? They're going to ask you, why do you have hope? And if you are caring enough at all about their soul and where they might be in their faith journey, you're going to want to be prepared to give an answer. Think about what 1 Peter 3.15 says. Peter understands this when he says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. So always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this then with gentleness and respect. Peter charged the church just before he's about to depart because he knew his day was coming to an end because Jesus had said, you're going to die, actually. You're not going to make it to that point when I return. You're actually going to die a martyr's death. So he tells the people, listen, if you're living as Christ wants you to live, where you're living with expectancy, that you're doing so among people who do not have the same hope you have, it should create, by the way you live, questions by those who are seeking understanding. It should. But it's also true that there are some who are in your life that see you living that way. They're going to ask you questions not because they care or that they're seeking, but because they want to disprove you or disarm you or disavow you. Regardless, our lives should provoke the question. 
And we better be prepared to give a reason for the hope we have. And for the person who sought understanding, they'll look into these things because they want to understand more so that their faith can grow. And because the disciples weren't settled with what they had just heard and they decided to ask some questions, you and I get the benefit of the next several weeks studying the Olivet Discourse for all that it points us to. And we are blessed for it. Let's pray. So Jesus, I thank you for the intriguing, interrogating hearts of those disciples. And thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to answer some questions there and give us many signs that we can begin to look at. But Lord, this will not bear fruit in us unless we're willing to lean into your word, lean into each other together, seeking understanding. It's then that it changes us so that others can see and begin their own journey of faith. Lord, we believe you're coming back. We anticipate that. We invite that. And may you find us faithful when you do return. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand, please? Well, in response to what we've just received, we have the opportunity to express our great hope. Would you sing with us?
So if you walked into this room not having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I would beg you for in your heart to not just receive this message, but to go on a journey of seeking understanding. Your eternity matters if you seek the answer to that question. I want you to understand that, that Christ came so that he could deliver and, and deliver you from the curses of your own life. He wants to bring life to it. The reason why we don't fear death and we operate with hope is because we know that when we're in Christ, we're promised an eternity with him because we've sought that understanding and by faith we receive it. And so if you have those questions, we'll have people in the encounter room that would be great, glad to meet with you. It's to my left, your right, uh, as you go out the door and they would love to answer those questions. I'll be up front as well. Don't let these questions go unasked. Your soul and your eternity depends on it. For those of you that have been a child of God or a follower of Christ for a long time, don't grow weary in seeking understanding. Don't stop growing. Find the joy of journeying with Jesus once again. Don't be guilty like the church of Ephesus that's talked about in Ephesians where you grow cold, lukewarm, but reignite the fire. And it begins by seeking. Because Jesus loves a seeking heart. We encourage you to keep going and asking more further questions. We believe that happens in community. So find people in a life group. We'd be glad to assign you a life group or connect you with a life group or an ABF to begin that journey. So people of God, leave this room confident in the one who holds the future. Because we know he's sovereign and he's orchestrated the times that we do not have to be in fear or panic, but confident with hope because he who holds the future is the one who controls the future. Amen? Well, I hope to see you next week if the Lord doesn't return, but if he does, I'll see you upon his return. Amen.